My name is Simon Lester. I'm a trade policy analyst here at the Herbert Stiefel Center for uh, Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Our event today focuses on a lawsuit uh, by the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly against the government of Canada um, before an international tribunal established under the NAFTA. What we hope to do today is sort through some of the very technical legal issues and also the political aspects of this case in a way that makes it understandable uh, and brings out the many policy considerations that arise. Now, this will be harder than it sounds. There are some parts of this case that I still don't get. Um, I'm going to read out some uh, words when I describe the case in a few, in a few moments, um, but I can't say I fully understand them. Um, and that's why we have this panel here to help uh, explain it all uh, to everyone, including to me. So I'm going to set out the basics, then I'll introduce our panel, let them debate and discuss it. I suspect they might not be in complete agreement on some of the issues. So turning to the case, the Eli Lilly NAFTA complaint arises from a series of Canadian court rulings that have narrowed the scope of when pharmaceutical products may be patented. In particular, the court set a high standard for determining whether the, the product in a patent application is useful. This is one of the three required elements for granting a patent. So under these rulings, patent applicants must now demonstrate or soundly predict the effectiveness of a product in order to establish its usefulness. And yes, this is the part I'm still a little bit fuzzy on. So as a result of these rulings, companies must engage in more testing of pharmaceuticals prior to applying for a patent. And this is very costly. Also as a result of these rulings, two of Eli Lilly's patents uh, for ADHD and schizophrenia drugs have been ruled invalid by Canadian courts in the past couple years. These patents have been granted in the early to mid 1990s. Uh, they've now been taken away. What this means for Canadian consumers of these drugs is that Canadian generics companies will, will start making the drugs. And that was who challenged Eli Lilly's patents as a Canadian generic drug maker. So more of these drugs will be available at lower prices, which sounds good. But of course, the profits of inventing companies are reduced. Um, if, if those profits are reduced, they have less incentive to make new drugs, and that's not as good. Uh, and that's the trade-off you have with generic drug production. So in response to all of this, Eli Lilly has sued under NAFTA Chapter 11, which allows foreign investors, and that's what Eli Lilly is in relation to its Canadian operations, allows foreign investors to bring claims to international tribunals uh, if their investments have been treated badly. Treated badly is the non-technical way of saying it, of course. Uh, it's more complicated than that. And we'll get into the details of their regulatory expropriation and minimum standard of treatment claims. And uh, as compensation for its losses, Eli Lilly has asked for $500 million. Not a record-breaking lawsuit, but not small potatoes either. So these events all raise a number of questions for me. First, with regard to patents, are the Canadian court rulings completely outside of international norms for, for granting patents? And if they are, does it matter if the Canadian courts go their own way? Second, where did this Canadian court doctrine come from? What rationale did the courts offer? What were they trying to do here? I also have questions relating to international law. So we have uh, at the WTO something called the TRIPS Agreement, and, and NAFTA has its own intellectual property rules. Are these IP-specific international law obligations a better forum uh, for, for these issues than the NAFTA <coughs> investment rules? The investment obligations are, are, are very general ones. Can they, maybe, can they be made to fit with these specialized IP issues? 
And more generally, should international courts be reviewing the decisions of domestic courts um, on intellectual property uh, issues or otherwise? Are there limits to this? And then finally, how will this case be resolved? Will the Canadian Parliament step in? Uh, will Canadian courts reverse their, their decision? So for, for answers to these and other questions, um, I'm gonna, let me turn to our panel. Let me introduce them now. So on my right, we have Mark Schultz. He's an associate professor of law at Southern Illinois University, also the co-director of academic programs at George Mason Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. He has served as chair of the Federalist Society's Intellectual Property Practice Group. Uh, he's been an NGO delegate to the World Intellectual Property Organization, and he's written a, a number of law journal articles and shorter pieces on just about all, aspe all aspects of intellectual property. Uh, over to my left, uh, we have Burju Kilic. She is legal counsel for a public citizen's global access to medicines program. She's an expert on the legal, economic, and political issues surrounding intellectual property law, policy, development, and innovation. She provides technical and legal assistance to governments and civil society groups around the world and promotes their participation in international rulemaking. Um, she has her PhD from Queen Mary University of London School of Law, where she also taught international and comparative patent law policy. And then finally, we have Chris Sands, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he focuses on Canada and US-Canadian relations. Um, he's a professorial lecturer at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, an adjunct professor at American University, and also a professor at the University of Western Washington. He has written many op-eds and longer studies and papers about North American competitiveness and North American integration. So what we're going to do is we're going to have each of our, our panelists speak for about 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll give them a, a three to five minutes or so afterwards to respond to anything their colleagues have said. One last thing before we start, for those uh, who may be watching on, on the web, um, feel free to, to tweet us questions using the hash, hashtag CatoNafta, C-A-T-O-N-A-F-T-A. Um, for those of you in the audience, you'll have a chance to, to stand up at a microphone and ask questions later, but if you want to tweet things as we go along, feel free to do it. And we will be, speaking of tweeting, we'll be uh, tweeting about this as it go, goes along if you want to follow uh, at Cato Trade. So with that, let me turn it over to, to Mark Schultz to, to kick us off. Thanks, Simon. Uh, I appreciate the, the chance to speak to you all. Um, let me do this so I can keep time on myself. I appreciate the chance to speak to you all. Uh, I am a, a professor of intellectual property law. I, I specialize, among other things, in international IP law and policy. I think this is a, a topic that uh, you indeed could have several in-depth subject matter experts uh, uh, fill, fill my spot on the panel. Instead, you're stuck with me, but I'll do my best. Um, so the... the um, let me begin with my agenda here. I want to put the utility requirement, which is what's at issue in this case, ultimately, it's the substantive law, underlying substantive law issue, in the context of patentability requirements, just very briefly. I want to talk about the nature of the utility requirement. So uh, both it, as has traditionally been uh, employed around the world versus how Canada has done it, uh, say a few words about the purpose of investor state arbitration the rationale for it, and a few uh, conclude with a few comments in the big picture. Okay, with respect to patentability, these are generally the requirements uh, to obtain a patent. Of course, patents cover inventions, and patents, uh, an invention to obtain a patent must be 
Uh, first of all, novel and non-obvious. It must, it must, in the the words more or less of many national laws and, and international instruments, uh, pr provide an inventive step over what has come before. And this is really uh, one of the hearts of, of patent law. It's how you ensure that the patent uh, owner gets actually uh, deserves what they get. They have to have brought something new into the world, uh, something that couldn't have readily been created by other people that wasn't obvious to others. Uh, beyond that, we have the disclosure requirement. Uh, the disclosure requirement uh, is another essential element at the heart of patent law because it requires the patent owner, the recipient of a patent, to fully disclose their patent and show that they've enabled the invention, um, at least in, in US terms, we, we speak of it this way. But the disclosure requirement ensures that the public gets their part of the patent bargain, right? The patent, the patentee gets what they deserve for bringing something new in the world. And in return for that exclusivity, they explain how to duplicate their invention. They provide instructions in their patent. Um, once you've done taking care of these two requirements, you've taken care of a large part of what's important about patent law. Then we have two other uh, requirements. The patent must be useful, or as it's often said in, in the international context, outside of the US, capable of industrial application, and within the appropriate subject matter of patent law. Now, these can be consequential requirements, but they're less about the heart and more about the boundaries, right? You know, patents, when we say they must be useful, it differentiates them from, say, pretty things without a function, right? That we're, we're talking, we're, we're placing them in the category of things where they belong. And so, uh, and often some of the concerns addressed by utility uh, that, that people try to bring into the utility analysis are better, are better addressed in terms of disclosure. Has the patent owner actually enabled the invention? Have they, have they finished the invention such that it can work? Does it, have they shown somebody else how to create it within the context of the patent? Um, that's, you take care of those things, you've probably taken care of utility, usually. Um, Okay, a little bit about utility. Utility's never been a high standard. There's a lot of patents been granted on things that have been, been useful. The monopoly game is useful. Uh, a method of putting is useful. Another method of putting is, is also useful. A patent's been granted on that. Uh, somebody got a patent on uh, a method of exercising their cat with a laser print pointer, also apparently useful. This one I've always liked. Um, the, uh, it's a device that torments squirrels. Now here's the utility. It's in the tormenting the squirrels, not keeping them from the bird feeder. They can get to the bird feeder, but they get shocked. I guess it's a bit of revenge. That's the utility. Uh, perhaps my favorite utility case of all, showing how, uh, showing how utility works, uh, the low standard for it at least, is a combination umbrella and lightning rod. Now the patent examiner was skeptical of this invention, saying, I, I don't think this is useful. It'll, it'll kill you, right? Uh, but the Board of Patent, the board, the Patent Office's Board of Appeals said, no, that's, that's useful. Now, we, while we would not consider using the claimed device for its intended purpose, it credibly fulfilled its intended purpose, which was acting as both an umbrella and a lightning rod. Uh, more generally, what we're looking for is typically a credible statement of utility. 
um, that corresponds to the patent claims. And when that statement is made, it's usually taken at its word as long as it, from the face of the patent, it subjectively appears to be present. In the case of pharmaceutical patents, what we typically find is that at least where the animal tests show some real-world utility, you've met the utility requirement. Things are a little different in Canada, though. Um, I'm not an expert on Can Canadian patent law, but I'll give you the best summary I can. Um, but before I get there, the bottom line is that the utility requirement's not a high threshold, and the way I've described it is, is generally how it's recognized throughout the world. It's historically well settled. These requirements have generally been har harmonized, except in Canada, and particularly in the case of ph pharmaceuticals. Okay, so Pat Canada has a utility requirement where applicants must disclose embodiments of the invention that actually work or disclose soundly predicted embodiments as of the time a patent is applied for based on only on the evidence that was available at that time. Now, really, I, I, many have argued that this isn't really a utility requirement. It's more of an evidentiary standard for applicants. Later proof of a working invention won't save the, the patent owner. They have to, and courts have shown a willingness to scrutinize the evidence available. Are the tests sufficient? Is the sample size large enough? Um, now, so they're not taking parties at the word. They're not just looking for some tests, some reasonable indication, animal tests, but rather sufficient tests. Um, and in effect, this relatively high standard has made it effectively impossible to get patents in which no actual working embodiments existed as of the filing date. And it's not always possible to have a working embodiment of your invention as of the filing date. You may not have the revenue for it. You may not, in the case of pharmaceuticals, have been able to sufficiently test it on humans. Um, and indeed, the problem with the standard for pharma patents in particular is it's like being forced to build without owning the land, right? I'd like to buy your lot to build a new resort hotel. Well, that sounds great. Go ahead, build it, let's see if your business plan works out, and then if it does, you can buy the piece of property. Would you make that bet? No, you wouldn't. And the pharmaceutical companies are reluctant to make that, would be reluctant to make that bet. Fortunately, the US has a, has a more, more liberal standard, so they're making that bet in the US. But really, if you had to do the human testing before you could get the patent, um, if you have to do extensive human testing that's very expensive, it undermines the incentive structure of patent law. You have to be able to get the patent to know you have the sound property rights before you make the substantial investment in testing. Not to mention the very process of testing may uh, expose your patent, um, essentially start, start the clock running on, your, on the requirements that could uh, could cause you, force you to have to file your patent sooner rather than later. It's, it's, it's not really compatible with the structure of patent law once you've publicly disclosed it to then wait, wait long enough for human, extensive human trials uh, that may become public. You, you may lose your patent in the meantime. Um, this tends to conflict with international norms 
And it underlies pat and undermines patent law harmonization and international treaty obligations. I'll return to that in a moment. I think that's a rule of law issue. Okay. Let's talk briefly about investor state arbitration. Okay, so Eli Lilly has brought an investor state arbitration claim. Um, it's not a court review, it's an arbitration panel. Uh, a number of uh, international agreements, particularly investment agreements and free trade agreements over the last, uh, over the last couple decades have included such provisions that allow somebody, as Simon said, described as an investor, to complain that their property has been expropriated and to file an arbitration claim against the host government. Uh, why do we have this? I mean, it sounds a little crazy when you think about it, right? That somebody has a cause of action against a foreign government. Well, for one reason is it benefits the investor, okay? Um, the investor is at a disadvantage. They don't have access necessarily to the local political process. Um, they don't have clout. Uh, foreign investors are, are sometimes a target for expropriation. So this gives them uh, some recourse. Also, in the context of other agreements, um, you cannot, as an investor, you cannot necessarily rely on your home country to look out for your interests, right? It takes, uh, imagine the scenario, when will the U.S. decide to step up and say, bring a complaint uh, under the WTO dispute resolution me mechanism against a foreign government? Well, so you're a company, you're aggrieved with what Germany has done to you, for example, at the moment, say. Uh, would the U.S. government be inclined to antagonize the German government, or are they still trying to make up for listening in on Angela Merkel's phone calls? They have some other concerns, right? They may not be con so concerned about your claim. So this gives you a claim that doesn't depend on your government weighing and balancing interests to decide whether it's worth advocating for your interests. And it's an individual claim. It's not a claim. It's an individual claim for compensation, not a claim to overturn the foreign state's law. Okay, but this also, the investor state arbitration provisions also benefit the receiving country. It may seem counterintuitive, but the, the country against who's receiving the complaint, uh, but the existence of this provision provides a credible commitment to live by, to abide by provisions to which they've committed, right? So you're a company. Uh, you are considering building a plant in Mexico. Um, why? Well, because after NAFTA, you see certain advantages to doing so, but only if the Mexican government abides by its commitments under NAFTA, right? And so how do you know they'll abide by those commitments? How do you know the U.S. would back you up for certain if the Mexican government didn't abide by its commitments? Um, so what the investor state provision uh, gives you the investor state remedy gives you is reassurance that you will have some recourse if Mexico doesn't abide by its commitments, and thus you are encouraged to invest. Thus, Mexico is more likely to receive investment. The risk premium is lowered, thus you know, increasing the likelihood of investment and potentially reducing the price of goods and services. And so there is a benefit to the host country because it gives them the opportunity to make credible commitment. Finally, it benefits the system generally. 
If you believe that free trade agreements are a good thing, if you believe that investor agreements are a good thing, then this is another way to ensure to create a system of global governance where there's more of a semblance of rule of law than we've had in the past, where uh, host states are more likely to be held to the commitments they've made. So it's a, a further potential benefit. Now, is everything great about investor state arbitration provisions? Potentially not, right? And I, I, I think my, my esteemed colleague on the panel will tell you what she doesn't like about them, so I won't, go into, I won't go into detail on that point, but I will concede there are things about the process of leaving these decisions up to a few arbitrators that I know many will find disturbing. Um, a few other points about investor state arbitration, a few quick facts. It's not uncommon anymore. It's, there's an increasing use of it worldwide. In 1992, there were just a few dozen cases. By the end of 2012, there were 514 cases. A large percentage of these cases settle, 30 to 40%. Um, and beyond that, let me conclude now by getting to looking at the big picture. Um, first of all, the fir first point to make uh, is that new drug development is essential to public health. There are many potential ways to do it, uh, but it appears that the system that works that works best, at least based on what we've been, what the U.S. has been able to do in developing drugs, is a system of private property rights, uh, with with some public financing involved, but but largely a system of private property rights predicated on patents. And many critics of the patent system, even those who are critics of the patent system, agree that pharmaceuticals are the 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 best case for patents because of the large fixed cost, the vast fixed cost, and the frequent failures uh, that go into drug that that occur in drug development. Patents are necessary to recoup those costs and encourage those kind of investments. And often, some critics complain of incremental innovation, um, especially in this context of of, pat, of Canada's utility standard. Uh, they say, well, incremental innovation isn't what the patent system is supposed to protect, but incremental innovation is, is essential to the patent system, right? If, you, if there's a drug that you're allergic to that you can't digest, an incremental innovation, another version of it, a more efficacious version for you, is certainly not just an incremental innovation, it's an essential innovation. Um, Second point is that Canada may be playing a canny and somewhat disingenuous game here in favor of domestic industries. Uh, it has large generic industries uh, and generic drug industries, and arguably this standard impacts heaviest, the, the, their utility standard impacts most heavily on pharmaceutical companies and thus does not necessarily disadvantage other Canadian industries um, to the extent it disadvantages foreign uh, drug companies. Um, finally, uh, I'll conclude with the point that investor state arbitration isn't just a form of, of dispute resolution, but has some, and isn't just a breach of sovereignty as some may see it. Instead, it, it can contribute to the global rule of law. Uh, with that, I'll conclude. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Mark. Um, next up, we have Virgil. Do you have a PowerPoint? Did I just turn? Yeah, that's okay. okay. Oh. 
I'm not even. Okay, yeah. There it is. start with my own big picture and uh, I'm gonna highlight three issues in my presentation the first of those issues is patents held in innovation um, I'm a legal counsel for public citizens global access to medicines program and we promote global access to medicines like affordable access to medicines all around the world and it's it's clear that if pharmaceutical monopoly power is too great, it compromises the access to medicines and people suffer. And it doesn't necessarily promote innovation. There are too many of patents nowadays. There are too many of low quality patents, and we're gonna see that. Um, and, and patentability standards are important to regulate the, 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 the misuse of the patent system. And investors <coughs> dispute settlement. We don't think that it's a, it's a right venue to address these issues. If we are going to address these issues, we should address it at WTO, at WTO dispute board. So let's start. Uh, Mark highlighted the, the, the patentability requirements and, and why we need patents. Uh, I just wanted to, to start with the basic of patents. What is a patent? Patent is a right granted by the state to an inventor. It's, it's, it's not a positive right. It's a negative right. It gives you a right to exclude others from using your, your invention, from making it, selling it, and, and, and marketing it. But it doesn't necessarily give you the right to, to, to use the invention or to market it. And the, and, 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 and the, 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 the issue is um, every time we grant patents, we, 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 we stop further research and development. So it is important that we talk about the patent bargain. And Mark mentioned the patent bargain, but I also want to highlight here. Every time we grant patents, we grant like, on the basis of disclosure. There is, a, there is a contract between inventor and the state. So the inventor reveals it in his invention and he gets the limited time exclusivity. And, and the, 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 he discloses the, the invention so the others can learn from it. And the knowledge develops and disseminates. So let's talk about Canada. The patentability standards in Canada, they're in line with international law and the, the general rules of like TRIPS agreement. So if you want a patent in Canada, your invention should be it should have uh, utility and it should, it should be non-obvious to someone skilled in art. So the TRIPS is in Canada is in compliance with the TRIPS agreement. Utility in Canadian law. Invention must be useful for the purpose which it was designed and specified in the disclosure and the claims. There is a, there is a rule, the case law, uh, the Canadian case law defines it very well. If you make a promise in your, in your specification, you have to fulfill that promise. If there is no promise, it's, it's okay to have mercy until of utility. So when promises are made, they should be kept. Promise of patents. That's the most controversial issue in Canadian patent law. But I have to tell, it's not uniquely Canadian. And when, when you, when you uh, 
when you look uh, at the other patent regimes, you see the, the, the promise of patent in, in other regimes as well. Like, for instance, British law. This is like a House of Lords decision from 19, 1919. And, and the, when you, the, the inventor, he purchased the, 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 the patent by the promise of results. So the inventor has an obligation to, to, to prove that his promises are kept. His invention lives up to his promises. What does that mean? What is promise? Promise is a presentation contained in the patent specification, whether implicit or explicit, that the patented invention will achieve one or more desirable outcomes and or will avoid one or more undesirable outcomes. So when we talk about the promise of patent, each it it fulfills the the the, the aim the patents Want to, want, want, want to realize. Like, for instance, it ensures that the patent, patentee actually delivers a concrete and tangible benefit to public in exchange for their 20 years exclusivity. Remember the patent bargain. We give the patent bargain as a society. We, give, we, we grant patents because we want, we want the, the, the benefit that the inventor would offer us. And it also ensures the patent conducted enough R&D to understand and communicate how the invention works. And of course, it prevents double patenting. And the determination of promises is an aspect of the patent construction, and it's a question of law. It, it lies in, very hard, in, in, in the heart of the patent law and practice. OK. Yeah, so Canadian, going back to the Canadian law, utility. According to, to Canadian law, utility must be demonstrated or soundly predicted as of the application filing date. So if the utility is demonstrated, it's okay. But if it is not demonstrated, if the, if the patent, patent applicant is not able to demonstrate it, what's going to happen? They have a second chance. Why it's not? Sound prediction test. So the sound prediction test, it offers, uh, it, it aims to establish a balance between the public interest in early disclosure of new and useful inventions, but it also aims to avoid cluttering the public domain with useless patents. As I mentioned, we have too many of those patents nowadays. So if the inventor has a factual basis for the prediction, he can easily pass the test. I know it sounds quite hard and it's, it's very technical, but I think the allegedly cases can, can best exemplify the, 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 the promise of patent and sound prediction text. Let's talk about the, the Stratera. Stratera is a high profit drug which, is, which was first patented in 1979 as an antidepressant. is the, the active ingredient of the drug. So, in 1996, uh, Eli Lilly repurposed the drug for ADHD. And from 1979 to 2011, uh, Eli Lilly had like a monopoly over this, this active ingredient. And the, the, the question in this case was, was there sufficient evidence demonstrating that at the date of filing, Atomexin would do what the patent promised? Or if not, that it, its utility could be sound to predict it? What was the promise? This is a new use of old drug. It is useful for treating ADHD. So 
What is HDHT? HDHT is a chronic disease. It's a lifelong disease. And the court decided that, you know, the study that you, you've been talking about, because in, in the patent specification, they were talking about one study, a three-week-long double-blind study of 21 patients. 21 patients, yes. And, and of course, the court said, that's not sufficient enough to prove that this, this drug is useful for ADHD. So, and they, 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 they invalidated the patent. Zyprexa. It is the second medicine which Eli Lili was talking about. Uh, this is the this is the another high profit uh, drug, and it was the, whose active ingredient is olan, olanzapine, which is first patented in 1980 as a part of a large class of compounds uh, of antipsychotic drugs. In 1991, this time Eli filed another application, a secondary application for. The, the compound olanzapine, because, because the first patent was expiring. And Eli Lilly needed to, to, to keep the monopoly over the olanzapine. So, and they claimed that this, the olanzapine has, uh, has, has superiority, superiority over the, 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 the first class of compounds. It has a better side effect profile. And the court asked, show us, demonstrate us. But there weren't enough evidence, because they included studies on the dogs. But the dog studies wasn't enough to, to, to prove the, 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 effic uh, the, the usefulness and efficacy in, in humans. So the judge said that I can't conclude uh, the drug is, 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 is more superior than the previous compound. So coming to the or NAFTA arbitration case. After all the domestic uh, remedies exhausted in Canada, Alalili filed a uh, uh, filed a five million U.S. dollars uh, lawsuit against Canada, claiming that uh, the the promise of patent in Canadian law infringes the the core requirement of patent uh, patentability ensured in NAFTA. So what are those core requirements of patentability ensured in NAFTA? Article 1709. I don't know how many of you are, 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 uh, uh, have interest in patent law, but for anyone who is dealing with patent law, this looks so familiar, because it's the same provision as in the TRIPS agreement. Although NAFTA concluded in, in 1992, the, the, the provision, NAFTA provision, was based on the Dunkel draft of the TRIPS agreement, which then became the final, final text of the TRIPS agreement. It's the same as Article 27.1. And our interpretation of 27.1 is like, yeah, it provides the frame for countries, but it's up to, to, to countries to implement this patentability requirement, because uh, every patents are territorial. And it doesn't, the TRIPS or NAFTA, they don't define definitions. If the parties had the interest or had the will to, to provide, like, to, or to harmonize those provisions, 
they could have done that. And, and interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, there were discussions of substantial patent law treating the um, World Intellectual Property Organization uh, in order to harmonize these requirements. And, and, and negotiations failed because, the, because countries couldn't agree on harmonized uh, provisions on patentability requirements. So, Another issue, patent cooperation treaty. That's, I'm not going to talk about that because I don't have time, but patent cooperation treaty is a WIPO treaty which uh, deals with the matters of form and contents and allegedly is uh, claiming infringement of patent cooperation treaty. But uh, you know, according to uh, the patent uh, cooperation treaty, members have freedom to prescribe substantive conditions of patentability. So coming back to our three issues. Patents held and innovation. Expanding pharmaceutical monopoly power compromises access to affordable medicines. And it's very clear that there are too many of low quality patents out there. And we've seen that there are more patents doesn't necessarily mean more innovation. And, and patentability requirements are important and patent regimes are appropriately national and it's up to countries. It's an international law. You have flexibility to implement the, 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 the patentability requirements and come up with your own solutions. And, and, and the promise of patent, it's not uniquely Canadian. And you can find the traces of promise of patent in every patent system. Uh, investor, investment state dispute resolution is, is a new venue for us. And I have to admit, it's, 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 it's quite important. This case is very, very important because uh, there have been all these discussions about like the infringement of trips and the patentability requirements, and we have like India case and, 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 and all these cases. But WTO dispute board, it hasn't decided yet whether a country is infringing the trips agreement or not. And to be honest, I don't really think that investment arbitration dispute resolution is a right venue to discuss these issues. If someone is going to decide whether Canada's patentability requirements is infringing the international law, it should be WTO, not three arbitrators. Thank you. Thank you, Pershu. Uh, and then finally, we have Chris Sands. Thank you very much. And uh, I want to say thank you to Simon for organizing this panel and uh, to my colleagues for being on it. I, I came all the way three blocks from Hudson, so it wasn't really a great trip, but it was, it was always important to me because I, I'm a Canada specialist, which uh, you can imagine my father thought it might be better if I was a poet, something more lucrative. <laughs> um, when you're the Canada specialist, you're sort of the Maytag repairman of international relations. You, you rarely get called on, you're there, because it's such a good, friendly relationship between Canada and the United States. And so I'm pleased to have this misery to comment on because it allows me to at least have some brief glimpse at relevance and, uh, and such good <laughs> colleagues. Um, so a couple of things. I, both my colleagues started with the big picture and worked it down to the small details of the case. I'm going to work it the other way. I'm going to start with a small picture, and I'm going to talk a little bit about where it leaves us in a big picture way to answer a question that when you study Canada for a living, you always have to answer for an American audience, which is, why do I care? And I'm going to try to talk about why you would care about all of this. And I think in some ways, really, pick up on some of the themes of both of my co-panelists and some of the themes that Simon uh, teed us off with at the very beginning. 
five broad points and then I'll, I'll burrow down into them. The first is that for a long time, more than 50 years now, Canada has used the regulatory system for economic development purposes. As, as a kid from Detroit, I know that within the context of the auto pact, we signed an agreement uh, to try to liberalize um, automotive trade. Canada used its regulatory system and a system of duty drawback to benefit Canadian automotive suppliers, which was the largest portion of the industry that was Canadian owned. Similarly, Canada has used intellectual property rules for some time to benefit Canadian economic development. Uh, as uh, my predecessors mentioned, the structure of the Canadian pharmaceutical industry is largely uh, a generic industry, manufacturing drugs on contract. There's not a lot of pharmaceutical innovation and development. Those of you who remember Banting and Best will know there was at some time, at one time, a larger Canadian pharmaceutical industry today. It's mostly the international majors who participate in the Canadian marketplace and the generics who provide the majority of Canadian jobs and economic activity in the sector. Secondly, trade negotiations such as the WTO talks, NAFTA, uh, and now perhaps in the future, the Trans-Pacific Partnership talks have long driven Canada to bring their, uh, an end, I guess, to discipline their use of economic uh, regulation for economic development purposes. This is something we've seen before on a repeated basis. And so there's every reason to expect that with the onset of the Trans-Pacific Partnership talks, with, uh, with other international talks going on, perhaps a resurrected Doha round or a future WTO round, that this too will spark the Canadians to change their rules. Now, NAFTA Chapter 11, my third point, is a sort of novel way to deal with this issue. I share some of the concerns of both of my co-panelists uh, on its actual value for Eli Lilly. And as a fourth point, I worry about the implications of using NAFTA Chapter 11 to solve this for the broader international trade system, investor state dispute resolution, intellectual property. Um, and finally, I'm going to advocate uh, a Canadian solution for a Canadian problem. I think the most appropriate place for resolving this dispute is the Canadian political system and not the international system. And I'll talk a little bit about how that can be achieved. So to go back to uh, my accusation that Canada's used their regulatory system, particularly with regard to intellectual property for economic development purposes, I want to back that up a little bit. Um, in 1969, Canada passed a patent act that created a system of compulsory licenses. The compulsory license system was meant to create a license whereby if the active ingredient or key ingredient was imported into Canada, a manufacturer could um, make a, a duplicate of a drug even if it had an international patent protection. So simply by importing the active ingredient, there could be a Canadian version of a drug. The compulsory license system was very unpopular with international pharmaceutical manufacturers who saw it as a way of their product being ripped off in Canada, even though it was only going to be used in the Canadian market. There was no compulsory license allowance for export of those drugs. It provided that the Canadian generic manufacturers could make the drugs cheaply simply by importing that active ingredient. There was some payment for the international manufacturer. The Canadian law stipulated a 4% royalty to go back to the originator of the drug, but that was the only uh, royalty that was paid. This system was 
unpopular with international pharmaceutical manufacturers, in particular American pharmaceutical manufacturers. And so in the run-up to the negotiation of the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement between 1986 and 1987, there was considerable pressure on Canada to bring their system of compulsory licenses closer to the international standard, and in particular closer to the way that the US handled some of these same issues. Canada in 1987 went through legislatively and changed the Patent Act to bring it closer to the American model. They retained the compulsory license system, so that was one, uh, one step, but provided originator exclusivity for a period of seven to 10 years, depending on whether there was a need to import an active ingredient or not, sort of a recognition that if the imported active ingredient was necessary, that, that might provide some additional inter, uh, protection for the international manufacturer. They also shifted the system to provide 20 years of patent protection from the date of the application filing um, so that there was a longer patent period when you applied for a specific Canadian patent. This alleviated some of the pressure, but the retention of the compulsory license system still rankled the United States, which went back to the Canadians and pressed for more change as we began negotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1992. Canada responded in 1993 by making another change to their system, amending the law to eliminate compulsory licenses altogether, bringing their system of patents closer to what you would see in, in the United States or elsewhere. And this was important because at the same time as uh, Dr. Kilich presented us earlier, at the same time we were negotiating NAFTA, the United States was also hoping to internationalize the standard in the TRIPS agreement that was being negotiated at the WTO level, or what we would then have called the GATT level. Um, and so in 1993, Canada made its first change. In 1995, in light of the TRIPS agreement, they made some small additional uh, changes, including patent for the passage of legislation called the Patented Medicines Act. And the Patented Medicines Act created a system whereby a generic manufacturer required a notice of compliance with international and domestic patents before it would be allowed to sell a prescription drug in Canada. The notice of compliance would be filed and the Minister of Health would have to approve uh, or I guess certify that the, in fact the manufacturer was in compliance with all international patents before it could produce the, the drug. Now, under this system that we saw after 1995, generic manufacturers could also file a notice of allegation. And the notice of allegation would signal to the courts that, and to the Minister of Health, that the patent holder was not meeting the terms of the original patent that perhaps there was a, either a, a deviation from the original promise or, or structure of the patent, or the patent was not being infringed by the new drug sufficiently to warrant uh, denial of the notice of compliance. The notice of allegation system led most of these cases into the Canadian courts, and there was a high volume of litigation. Now, why does that matter? Because generic manufacturers, most of whom are Canadian-based, have a long history of going to court, suing international manufacturers to gain the right to make copies of those drugs. This is an adversarial system. One of the interesting things for people who follow you know, patent law, listening to the two previous presentations, is how much of this is ending up in the Canadian courts rather than in the Canadian patent office that's making the determination of the original patent. This is because of the change in 1995 that drove adjudication of patents into the courts and made that the primary venue for international manufacturers to fight with Canadian-based generic manufacturers. Now in 2002, 
the Canadian Supreme Court through another uh, challenge forward. In a decision on a patent case, the Canadian Supreme Court said that in the matter of utility, the usefulness, the standard of usefulness requires two things, demonstration of utility or sound prediction of future utility in the case of a drug which hasn't been through clinical trials prior to the patent application because the drug manufacturer wants to hang on to the intellectual property before it gets loose uh, during clinical trials. That created an opening under which courts could then interpret or question the utility component of the patent application post facto as well as pre-decision. And this is something that both of my colleagues have brought up, but I wanted to put it in that specific Canadian context, that this began with a Canadian Supreme Court decision that redefined the way Canada would deal with this particular component, which is why utility, largely not contested internationally, has become so important in this particular case. Now in 2006, Canada made an additional change to the compliance rules to limit the options for generic manufacturers to challenge international manufacturers on patents. This was under severe American pressure because we had a number of issues with the way Canadians handle intellectual property. Some of you will know USTR beginning in, in 2000 began listing Canada as an intellectual property pirate, putting them on the same list as China and other countries. There was a lot of pressure in our trade negotiations with the Canadians over a number of issues on this particular issue of pharmaceutical uh, uh, patent rights. And so in 2006, the federal government attempted to tighten that up by issuing some clear directives on the notice of compliance process and when ministers of health should not issue a notice of compliance. They made it clear that patent rights were more exclusive than they'd been previously interpreted in the hope of ending some of this tension. But that set the stage for courts, and this is the story that brings us here, for courts in Canada to develop something called the promise doctrine, looking at the implicit promise of the patent application to make a post facto judgment on infringement based on a change in usefulness, either because the sound prediction was a false prediction or because the demonstration was insufficient, which is the basis for, for these cases. This, however, opened us up to an ongoing dispute over Eli Lilly's, um, Eli Lilly's particular drugs, which I think Dr. Kilich explained very well. Now, NAFTA Chapter 11 does provide investor state disputes resolution here. But from Eli Lilly's point of view, it's a limited good. On the one hand, they can sue the government of Canada and ask the government of Canada to give them compensation for the lost patent right in monetary damages. That doesn't extend their patent right. It doesn't prevent their, their drugs from being copied. It sets a precedent. They lose market share as well in Canada. So it's it, it's compensation at its best, but it's not a resolution of the problem that brought them to court. It's less good than a change in Canadian law or legal interpretation that gives them back their patent right. It's also tricky for the international community because as we approach intellectual property negotiations with our Asian partners in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we've also brought IP very much to the center of the Doha round negotiations and whatever succeeds them post Bali. We've brought intellectual property rights into the dialogue in the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership with the Europeans, and we have been arguing with both Mexico and Canada in bilateral forums on these same issues. 
the extent to which a NAFTA Chapter 11 panel simply disciplines the government of Canada rather than changing Canadian law opens us up uh, down the road to challenges to using investor state dispute resolution and will put us put tremendous pressure on us to ensure that these other agreements have tighter intellectual property rules. But it also creates an opportunity, an opportunity to use the pressure of ongoing negotiations to get Canada to change its law again. <coughs> this has been the route that we've taken now for decades. When Canada has found itself out of line with the way the US would prefer and, and other international partners would prefer that it handle pharmaceutical patents, we encourage pre a, a large trade negotiation <coughs> Canada to bring its law into conformity. And this is the ironic thing. Prior to the NAFTA Chapter 11 dispute being filed, Eli Lilly's great hope was that the Supreme Court of Canada would look at their appeal and consider issuing rulings that would tighten up the use of the promise doctrine in a way that would be beneficial to Eli Lilly. And the Supreme Court of Canada denied an, uh, the application for appeal, denied hearing the case, leaving Eli Lilly frustrated it went to the government of Canada and said, we'd like the government of Canada to intervene, either by changing the regulation to define the utility in a tighter way, or once again, bring in new legislation to tighten up the system. The government of Canada did not choose to act in that regard. And so Eli Lilly, I think, took the NAFTA Chapter 11 route in some frustration. But we still have an option for the government of Canada to act here. And doing so is in the Canadian interest because it avoids putting this issue into international arbitration or into some sort of um, future trade negotiation setting where Canada might be disadvantaged. The first thing the government of Canada can do is send a reference. In the Canadian system, the parliament, the government of Canada can send a question to the Supreme Court and ask for a ruling on that specific question. You don't have a question of standing. The question would be, do we need to legislate or redefine this term, utility, in light of Canadian patent law? Do we need to go back and pass new legislation or should we handle it through the regulatory process? Supreme Court can respond to that within the Canadian system and provide some clear definition or, or no answer. The government of Canada with a majority in parliament can pass new legislation, which would be a second step that would work to resolve this dispute. And third, the government of Canada can try to set up some sort of mediation between the generic manufacturers and, and Eli Lilly itself. But the problem we now have with Chapter 11 is that while a Chapter 11 dispute panel is being heard, the government of Canada, the civil service of Canada is unlikely to do anything on this issue, waiting for a NAFTA Chapter 11 panel to resolve it. We've put ourselves now in limbo because of NAFTA Chapter 11. So I, I would hope we could suspend the Chapter 11 case, we could move back to a Canadian solution to this Canadian problem to resolve this in a timely fashion prior to the ramping up of negotiations in Asia and across the Atlantic. That would be the path of peace, the very sensible Canadian solution I would recommend. Um, however, the longer this goes on, the more likely I am to get invited to cool talks like this, so um, <laughs> let the games continue. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. Um, what, I, what I want to do now, I want to leave some time for questions yeah. if people have them, but I feel like these events are better if there's a little bit of interaction instead of just people talking and then it ends. So I wanted to um, give the panelists a chance to, to respond if they want to take a couple minutes to, to you know, anything their fellow panelists have said, and maybe we just start in the same order. Uh, Mark, I mean, if you have anything, anything uh, you want to add quickly. Sure, sure, thanks. Uh, well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that, that Chris really uh, ran with this moment to shine here uh, and... Uh, showed his expertise in Canada. Uh, that, was, that was great. Um, one point I'd, I'd like to make is that the, 
the promise doctrine, it's, it's not a question of whether the promise has been kept. Uh, it's, it's an evidentiary question at, at the time the patent's filed. Uh, these, these supposedly useless patents, uh, the, the, the generic drug manufacturers who challenged them spent uh, a considerable sum of money to challenge these useless patents and, and then happily uh, produce them for the market. So, so there must be some use for them. Uh, and, and the promise must have been fulfilled in some way. The, as I said, this is a, a question of the level of evidence required. And aside from the, there, there's really a practical point that, that aside from the, the technical legal requirement, when you take a step back and look at what you're asking a pharmaceutical manufacturer to do, you're often asking them to do something that is impracticable for pharmaceutical patents, which is conduct sufficient human invest in conducting sufficient human testing before you actually have the property right um, to justify that investment. Um, finally, I'd just like to stick up for the patent system. Uh, the, the comment about the, the large number of low-quality patents is, is a very current theme. Uh, but, but let me note that w without, without disputing the heart of that, although I disagree disagree with many of the implications, um, that's a critique applied largely to other areas of patent law than pharmaceutical patents. Um, and so for purposes of this discussion, I'll note it's, it's a bit, bit, of a, bit of an unfair poke at, at the patent, at this part of the patent system. Um, so, uh, and by the way, every time we grant a patent, we don't necessarily stop R&D, we facilitate future R&D by uh, continuing to secure the investment and in the productive intellectual labor of inventors. So thanks. Thanks. Virgil, do you have any? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think I have to mention um, that patents are, are, are territorial and it's, 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 all, it's, it's, it's up to countries to decide what they should grant, what they would, decide, what they would grant patents for. And in, and in the case of, the, 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 um, of, of Canada, yeah, it's it's all about promises. Like they they, they in literature uh, there are when you, when you check the lit uh, patent literature, yeah, it's all about the promises because uh, the patent applicants shouldn't get patents for speculations, you know, and the patents should be granted for true true inventions, and it 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 avoids. Patent, patent applicants to get patents on speculation. And if patent owner is unable to demonstrate that his invention is useful at the time of filing, maybe they should, he, should, he should apply later on when he has like a evidence to, to show that it's useful. And the usefulness in patent law is, is different from usefulness in real life. Because when we talk about usefulness in, in, in patent law, remember, patent is not a positive right, it's a negative right. And, and every time we grant patents, we stop further research and development. And, and from the society's point of view, we, we will tell, tolerate, we will be able to tolerate if the patent, patent holder, patent applicant is able to demonstrate that his invention is useful. Thank you. Chris, I feel like you just spoke, but if you want to add something more, feel free. Uh, no, I, I, I just, you know, I think that uh, this is a really interesting example, however, of how the international and the domestic are increasingly in tension. And uh, 
this will be the kind of debate Canada will face in the international negotiations uh, at, at TPP and elsewhere. Um, but I think they're, they still have an opportunity to solve it domestically and avoid, well, uh, such nice can people. I, can I comment? Uh, yeah, speaking of TPP, yeah, even even in Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, it's a it's 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 promoted as high standard agreement, but the parties, they don't they don't intend to harmonize the requirements of patentability. So there is no definition. They don't they don't they don't aim to harmonize the the patentability requirements. They have a provision there, which is very, very similar to NAFTA provision and the TRIPS provision, but they don't provide definitions. Well, early days on TPP, yeah. though. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that's actually a perfect opportunity. I was going to mention it later to, to, to tell you about uh, uh, an event we have next Tuesday about uh, intellectual property in the TPP. So uh, if you want to hear more about that, please come back next Tuesday, and we'll go into detail on, on that. Um, so let's open it up for questions now. Um, I, maybe I'll start us start us off, and you know everyone else can try to think of some questions. Um, now I'm in over my head a little bit on patent issues, so I apologize if I'm not stating this clearly. Uh, this may be more for Mark and Berju than for Chris, but Chris, feel free to weigh in with any thoughts you have. So as I understand it, the U.S. Supreme Court will soon uh, be consider considering the extent to which um, certain software is patentable. Um, now, if they say this particular software is not patentable, what I wondered is. Uh, do Canadian companies then have an opportunity, um, Canadian companies, companies who had U.S. software patents, um, have an opportunity to bring a NAFTA Chapter 11 claim? W what would that look like? Is that a real possibility? Either Mark or Bruce, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if soft software patents mean... I, I can't talk about software, but I can tell you last year, for instance, U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided that isolated genes are, no long, are not patentable subject matter. And there are many biotechnology companies who have invested in uh, who have investments in the U.S. and they 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 used to get patents for isolated genes. That now they no longer get patents. They might bring a case against the U.S. Maybe Canadian biotechnology company because he has investments. It's the same logic. So this investor-state dispute resolution can hunt to the U.S. as well. I. I am not sure that's likely to happen. The subject matter requirements are of a different nature, and in, indeed, uh, a number of countries uh, exempt already exempt software patents, for example, from the subject matter of patent law, and still uh, are considered to be in compliance with their international treaty obligations. It's kind of a technical answer. I think it's, it's more a matter of how we interpret the u the utility requirements or the industrial application requirement that countries have already agreed to uh, is, is really what's at, at stake here. Let me just, just comment on, on the investor state. When, when the investor state clause was put into um, NAFTA, we didn't have one in the Kennedy's Free Trade Agreement. The idea was that it was protection against nationalization of physical property, you know, uh, plants that were seized or, or, um, or molds or, or something along those lines. It was in NAFTA and not Canada's free trade because of a concern that the Mexican government had a history of nationalization in the oil sector and in elsewhere. So we needed to have that discipline to protect ourselves against future government action. So it had a very specific, you know, context. Subsequently, and during the NAFTA ratification, um, Creative minds uh, started to speculate that the way that the investor state dispute 
language in NAFTA had been written, it could be used to address something called regulatory taking, whereby a government that changes a regulatory standard would have to owe compensation to a firm which it had put out of business. And there's a very famous case in California regarding a methanol additive, MTBE, that was put in to increase octane into fuel as a remedy for smog in uh, LA and, and other California cities. It was a mandated additive, so there was a definition of how much of it would be added to gasoline, an estimate of how much gasoline would be used. And uh, the government of California later discovered that MTBE was had a lot of dioxin in it. There was a cancer risk from handling it. And so decided summarily to ban its use and the manufacturers of MTBE with signed contracts to provide it were suddenly no longer allowed to sell and sued the government of California under the NAFTA Chapter 11 saying, by changing your regulation, you are in fact denying us access to our property right, which is a contract right, which has a specific monetary value. And this was important because those critics who worried about this use of investor state dispute resolution saw this case as exactly what they feared, that governments would be prevented from doing things in public interest like environmental health and safety regulation by the fear of onerous bills of compensation to private sector firms that were involved, maybe innocently, in this case, uh, not trying to sell a carcinogen, but trying to sell something that the government had actually wanted to buy. Um, that hangs over this particular debate about pharmaceuticals as well, because the idea that a court making a legal ruling in Canada affecting patent law is a regulatory taking, not the normal sort of definition of seizure of property. Nobody's nationalized the patent uh, in that sense. So it, it, it goes into this gray area of what should fall under investor state dispute resolution. And I think even though we're talking about patent law here, there is the possibility as we go forward that we will have investor state dispute resolution with more specific definitions of what's precluded, either to allow or to disallow regulatory takings. And from a Cato perspective, which I, which I do have a lot of respect for, the hope that investor state could limit regulatory taking and keep governments from using the regulatory system to try to benefit domestic interests or preferred interests is one of the hopes of investor state um, clauses. So there, there is a lot at stake, even in this small dispute. Thank you. Um, and I didn't mean to suggest by my question that I'm hoping for this NAFTA Chapter 11 uh, challenge against the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, but it would give me a lot to write about and an opportunity to hold more events like this one. So um, let me open up to questions from uh, the audience, if anybody uh, has anything that they want to ask. I think that I think they'll bring a microphone. Bye. Hello. Okay, um, so my first one is Canada seems to have been trying to, or they're incentivized by the type of healthcare delivery system that they had to drive down drug costs. So I'm wondering if you think that the new, I guess, healthcare reform in this country in the next 50 years could change the US perspective on patents. And then my second question is, is the whole issue here seems to be innovation versus access and what other solutions do you think might be out there, sort of like the medicines patent pool, and your thoughts on that, maybe? Uh, what was the, the second question? You kind of rushed through that. Oh, sorry. Um, so it seems like the whole issue around patents is how to reconcile innovation and access, how to give back to the originator and also make drugs available to the public. And right now, we just seem to be in a struggle of, you know, 
which way should the balance lean? Um, and the medicines patent pool sort of seems to be a way to reconcile that without giving anyone the upper hand. And do you have any other ideas, real or unreal, of what should be done next? I, I can deal with the first part, and you guys can deal with the second part. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I have a few things to say about yeah, I can the first also. part. Uh, all right, well, <laughs> you go ahead. We can all speak. All right, all right. Everyone can talk. For, I have nothing to say Canadian about Canadian pharmaceutical pricing is a little different than American pharmaceutical pricing. And they have a formulary that is used based on an international trade-weighted market sort of basket of prices for drugs. So they revise the formulary every year, but what they do is they try to figure out, okay, well, the price of this drug in the US is this, the price of the drug in Europe is this, et cetera, and come up with a price which is negotiated, which all the healthcare systems, um, although it's national, there's a national standard for healthcare, the provinces actually run the Canadian healthcare system. So then the purchase of drugs is all set and the prices are set. That has led to drugs that are cheaper than in the United States. And so we have people who go to Canada to get their prescriptions fulfilled. Um, and that has been an issue of grabbing some attention. It isn't so much the healthcare reform in the United States that, that posed a change to that, so much as it was Medicare Part D, which was brought in during the George W. Bush years, which shifted the way in which pharmaceuticals pricing was operated in the United States because the Medicare program would be, provide a, a sort of its own formulary for Medicare patients, which <laughs> represents a large proportion of the people buying drugs in the United States and therefore brought some discipline to that. And it's lowered American drug prices overall, at least overall, not for some specifics, in a way that has actually also lowered Canadian drug prices. But the idea, and I, know, I, I think a lot of people find it attractive, that you could control the growth of healthcare spending by controlling the prices of drugs has been one only indirectly handled in the Canadian system through this market basket. That was all I was going to say. Uh, you want, to go want me to go? Or? I'll take the last word. Okay. You'll take the last word. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so... So I, I think the very, really you almost have nowhere where you, you actually have free market pricing for drugs, including the United States. But out of anywhere, uh, we, we perhaps have something, out of any large market, we, we still maintain something close resembling a market. And as a result, American consumers, by and large, are, are financing the world's drug R&D. Um, and I know, you know, I have friends who work, you know, old friends who work in pharma college friends, and we've talked about this issue. And, and I said, well, you know, with, with us, with the U.S. moving toward uh, a potentially different model, where, where do you see your future financing coming? Well, maybe we'll make it up in volume in the developing world. Um, but this the, in most countries, you have a single payer uh, that negotiates hard on prices, and some of those single payers negotiate very hard. Uh, Norway uh, gets lower drug prices than uh, its its poorest neighbors in the Euro European Community. You know, the country with uh, the highest standard of living in the world pays less for drugs than I think Slovenians. I've been told. Um, so, so when you have uh, these kind of controls on the market, yes, it's, it's harder to finance drugs. And of course, as you've asked, it changes the perspective. You also asked a question about uh, whether patents pose a, for, a question premised on, on the idea that, that, that there's a, a 
conflict between patents and the public interest. Um, in, in our Constitution, it, when, we, when the American founders uh, in, uh, provided as one of our few enumerated limited powers the right of Congress to uh, the right of Congress to to grant exclusive rights to authors and inventors. Um, the founders didn't create a tremendous record on this clause, but one of the things that James Madison said in the Federalist Papers, one of the few things he did say, was that uh, he expressed his full confidence that this right was fully in keeping, fully coincided with the public interest. Um, and let's, let's remember that, that Property rights are something that Americans don't, the, our American system doesn't apologize for. We don't talk about the need of you, of the homeowner, to balance their rights against the public interest. A properly defined property right is in keeping with the public interest. Uh, that means that we have nuisance laws, we have trespassing laws. Yes, we make sure that your rights are in balance by defining them well, but we're not in this constant position where we're apologizing or worrying about whether your rights are out of balance. Uh, the public interest is in seeing new drugs developed and seeing the productive intellectual labor of inventors rewarded. Um, finally, a medicine's patent pool, if it's voluntary, uh, it can be productive. It can be a useful solution. Patent pools are uh, if done through private ordering, are often an efficient and effective solution and a great example of why property owners uh, can use their rights to alienate their property for the public good and their own good through cooperating. So I think a patent pool can work great as a form of private ordering. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm just going to, to focus on the access to medicines, uh, the question on access to medicines. We've been hearing this quite a lot, like uh, establishing the balance between innovation and access. And I think there is, there is something we, we, we forget. There is an agreement. There is an international agreement which is, which is serving that, that aim. The TRIPS agreement. I mean, that's the, the, the main objective of the TRIPS agreement. Protect the innovation and, and provide access. And, and there are flexibilities in, 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 the, in the TRIPS agreement. They, they, they are there for countries to use. The problem is there, there, are, there are these efforts of developed countries and uh, pushing for their own standards. And what we are trying to do is we encourage countries to use the flexibilities which are already exist in international law. And that's what we should do. Thank you. Thanks. I, I think we have time for one or two more questions. Okay, right there in the middle, I see one. And then, oh, yeah, uh, that's the one I saw first, but let's try to get to the other two as well. Uh, uh, my question, I think, is mainly for uh, Dr. Kilic. Uh, I'm finding it very hard to understand the rationale of the promise doctrine. Because if a patent doesn't fulfill its promise, then the right to exclude others from producing the product is, you, it doesn't, uh, doesn't matter since someone will want to produce it anyway. I mean, the fact that there are others who 
who want to produce the product and that you need to exclude would seem to prove that you have in fact fulfilled the promise. So is the promise, doct is the promise doctrine simply an excuse by the Canadian courts to favor you know, their domestic industries or is there some real rationale here that, that I'm missing? Um, first of all, uh, I know uh, it is, it's widely called as promise doctrine, but as a patent scholar, I like to use the term the promise of the patent because it's, it's a widely a adapted term and, it's, and you can find it in other legal systems. As I, as I mentioned in my presentation, this is, this is not Canadian. This is not uniquely Canadian. And you can see the, the same kind of like institutions in other patent laws, including British patent law, Australia, New Zealand, even European Patent Convention, they don't necessarily under the, they are not necessarily under the, the utility standard. But for example, in, in European patent law, like European patent law, European patent convention requires inventions to be uh, capable of industrial application. And which is, which is a lower standard com comparing to utility. But in the meantime, European uh, Patent Convention requires invention to be techno to to have a technological teaching. So it's the same as the promise doctrine. And as I mentioned, this is not not as uh, this is not Canadian. This is not something Canadian courts came up with just to 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 provide uh, better incentives for it, uh, for the Canadian generic companies. It's all about the patent law, and it's all about the, 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 the bargain that the society and the inventor has, you know. Because inventor, he gets the patent, he gets the exclusivity, and he promises those that, that results. And when he made, he, when he make that promise, he should be able to demonstrate that his, his, he, his invention will achieve, or his invention will live up to that promise. It's, it's very basic, but it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's about the construction of patent law. Well, let, me, let me just jump in, and I realize you directed the question here, but um, this is the problem, though, for, for the way the Canadian law has shifted. Normally, you demonstrate utility, you show that it can be used, or you have a, a chemical compound you think can be used in a particular application and you need to do cl clinical trials. Maybe you've done trials with animals but not with humans, that sort of thing. So what's been happening is that drug companies will say, um, we cannot yet demonstrate utility in this application because we haven't done the clinical trials, but we would like the patent based on our prediction that this will be the case. So then they get the patent. And then the challenge from the generic manufacturer is, well, you hoped that you would find this when you did your actual human trials, but we don't think you fully met the promise. Now, the argument, and, and you see this here because it is used in British law in, in Dr. Kelich's comments, is that the company promised to deliver an outcome, but the company couldn't know whether the outcome would work until it had done its clinical trials. So it says, we think this application warrants the patent to protect our chemical formula, and then we're gonna do the clinical trials, and then utility will be proven by the fact that people use the drug safely down the road, so that it's handled by the drug regulators and not by the courts. It's a catch-22, though, because either you know it's useful, in which case you don't need to do clinical trials, 
or you make this promise and then expose yourself later to being undermined because you haven't either met the full extent of the promise or the clinical trials didn't go well. Leaving the company to do their clinical trials in secret and keep you know things hush-hush until they're ready to be sure or to take a chance and in the past, that wasn't a big chance because the courts would respect, well, you know, you hadn't done your clinical trials and now that you've done them, it seems reasonable and the market is making use of the product. Just like you said, the utility is proven by the use. So I think that that's, what, that's the daylight there that has become very difficult for pharmaceutical manufacturers. And can I add something just like one line? Yeah, and another issue here is like most of the, these, these drugs like which are invalidated in Canada. They are not new inventions. They are, most of the time, they are the new uses of older drugs or the, the, the so-called selection patents, as in the, the case of Zypexra. So, and most of the time, the pharmaceutical companies, they aim to, to prolong the, the monopoly over that, that drug. So they come before the patent expires, they come up with new use or a selection patent and saying that, yeah, yeah, this is, this is useful, we'll, 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 we'll prove it later on. But it doesn't work like that because it, 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 it contradicts with the main ideology of the patent law. If you try to squeeze in one more question, I saw. Um, okay, thanks. Uh, my question's for everyone, but probably more for Professor Schultz than the others. Um, if you start from the premise that the trade agreements are more general and they have many roles, including standards of patentability, and then it's up to each country to determine the more specific laws as long as it's within the more general framework of the trade agreement, um, then in order, I, I would think that in order for Eli Lilly to win the case, there'd have to be something about the court case that violates something in NAFTA. And I thought it was strange that in this whole panel, what exactly, how, what is going on violates NAFTA was never really discussed. There was talks talking about like how things are generally done, how things, international norms and U.S. law. But since, you know, we don't have to abide by Mexican or Canadian law, then it should follow that. Canada doesn't need to abide by our laws, but they do have to abide by NAFTA. So in order for Eli to win the case, what what's there? Like, what's their winning argument saying that Canada is in violation of NAFTA? So so the claim is that the uh, that there the Canadian utility standard is not in is imposes a requirement exceeding the uh, the utility requirement in NAFTA. And uh, a further question implicit in your question that's that's debated in in the academic literature and among among arbitration experts is to the extent you can look to uh, the the public law and practice and in practice precedent of other countries to define a term such as the one in the NAFTA agreement, uh, it, and so the the question is whether you know capable of an, the question that this arbitration may examine is indeed that is whether two things whether whether indeed Canada has violated the NAFTA ar 
uh, obligation has imposed a requirement beyond that mandated. And second is whether it can look to uh, broader, look to the precedent of other countries to, to help define that term. Uh, just to pick up on that, NAFTA dispute resolution, whether it's Chapter 19 or Chapter 20, which both deal with uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duty, or Chapter 11, investor state disputes, are all premised on the same thing, which is not that international law is brought to bear on, on the government in question, but that they must apply their own law in a non-discriminatory and consistent fashion. So if it appears that there has been a change or something arbitrary done, they can be held to the standard of their own law. This is unlike, say, the European Union, where there are new sort of continental standards. Here, the standards are the Canadian government's own. And the question here comes from the fact that there was a patent granted. Eli Lilly owned a patent. And post facto, retroactively, they're having that patent invalidated in a court because the court is determined by a new standard not used at the time that the patent was granted that the patent no longer meets the promise. So they're saying it's a bait and switch. You're using your law to preference domestic interests over the international interests. That's patently unfair. So they would like to have Canada follow its own rule of law, and that's why they're, they're going about this. I think it's ironic because earlier I was talking about regulatory takings where the government, for a reason, maybe to, maybe as public policy to help domestic interest, might cook the books a little bit to help their domestic interest. We've never talked about judicial takings, that actually a court acting on its own might take a right away. So it's, it is very new territory. Um, but ultimately, I think what, what the plaintiff is looking for here is fair application and consistent application of Canadian law in a Canadian setting, which is why I think ultimately we'd be better off having a Canadian solution to this Canadian problem. Well, unfortunately, I have to cut it off here. If people have further questions, I invite you to please join us upstairs on the second floor for lunch. I don't know if all the panelists can make it, but we can continue this conversation if people want to have it. And with that, uh, please join me in thanking the panelists. I, I know I got a lot of great insights here, and I hope you did too.